Well, welcome back. I like to think of the 3.30 on Sunday afternoon crowd as God's Marines. You guys are the best of the best. You're the toughest of the tough. If this were a works religion, you guys would be solid. However, the theme of the weekend is grace. And it's not about how much you do, how hard you work. It's about how close you are to God. And for this session, I want to focus on what that means for the way we treat each other. As you have received grace, give grace. You have received freely, therefore give grace freely. I'm just going to put an image up on the war on, on the wall. You can apply this to a lot of different contexts, but there's a story. A lot of people think we're living through the most polarized time that politically that we've ever been in, unless there's a historian in the room who says, hello, Civil War. Uh, during the actual Civil War, Abraham Lincoln was at some kind of gathering, and uh, he had to make a few comments, and, and part of the comments that he made were, look, we are in this war and we need to win it, but I want you to understand that the southern people that we're in conflict with are erring human beings that deserve our compassion. And there was a lady in the room, an older lady, she became absolutely irate, so irate, according to the story, that she stood up and berated the President of the United States in public to say, how dare you? say that we need to have compassion on these Southerners who are killing our boys in the field, even as we are sitting here talking. The only thing we need to do with the Southerners who are our enemies is destroy them. According to the story, Abraham Lincoln's answer was, Madam, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? Man, I hope that story is true. I don't know if it is, because I couldn't go back and verify it from any source other than the one I got it from. It, if it isn't true, it needs to be true, because that is the essence of what's going on in Jesus' teaching and the Apostle Paul's teaching and other teachings we have in the New Testament about what it means that you've been shown grace and the way that that kind of flips the script on how you're going to treat the people that need some help from you. As you have freely received grace, so give grace. Jesus says, Luke 17, if your brother or sister sins against you, this is the NIV translation, if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. If they repent, forgive them. Now I want to pause on that because... Sometimes people forget the first part of that is in there. Um, Jesus says, if people do what's wrong, you need to be forthright, not evil and rubbing your hands about it, but you need to be forthright in saying what's going on is not okay. Rebuke. But if they repent, forgive. And he goes on to double down on this. This is the way Luke tells it. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The reason Jesus gives for this in other contexts is if you can't forgive your brother or sister from your heart, how do you expect God to forgive you, your sins? And that's really the way that Jesus thinks about this. He, in this context, in the Luke 17 context, the disciples say, increase our faith. Increase our faith. When he says seven times a day, 
And seven times they repent and you forgive them seven times? Increase our faith. And Jesus uses one of his characteristic sayings, says, I'm telling you, if you have just a tiny bit of faith, faith like a mustard seed, you can, you can move a tree around. In this case, he says, you can take a mulberry tree and just tell it, get up, walk over there, be planted over there, and it'll happen. God can do great things in you if you're depending on God to do them. So Jesus didn't think this was going to be easy for us. Jesus didn't think this was an easy thing for us to apply to our lives. But he says this is the way we express what has happened to us out into the world. God's grace has allowed God to come into our lives. And there is a disconnect if God has graciously erased the mess that we've made, made a clean place so that his spirit can live in us, and that we are unable to extend grace to those around us. There's a disconnect. And so part of how your awareness that God is in you will be expressed is an increasing ability to give that grace on to those around you. If you want a wrathful God, then be a wrathful person. If you want a judging God, be judgmental. If you want a forgiving God, be forgiving. And P.S., the only God you actually can want to draw close to is a forgiving God. If you, if you were raised, and some of us were raised with a pretty judging and wrathful God, it's hard to want to get very close to that God. I want to hide from that God mostly. I just would rather he didn't notice me. But the God that I can really want to be living in my heart and be with me every second of every day and to be wanting more and more awareness of him, to be praying to all the time and to be asking for his help and to be giving him thanks, that's a God who I know is giving me forgiveness all the time. And, and that God doesn't square with my inability to forgive those around me. God comes into your heart to kick out the works of Satan and the mess that Satan has helped make in your life. And unfortunately, our relationship with resentment and revenge often makes us into tools of Satan. We do Satan's work for him. And Satan's got plenty of people to do his work. He does not need us doing his work for him. But when I am filling my mind with my anger at what's been done to me, and folks, it's real, the harm that has been done to you. It's not fake. This is a real fallen world. And real harm has been done. Real abuse has been committed. Real injustice has been done. You have been harmed. There are people who deserve your anger. But if you give in to that and that wrath, you will end up adding to the store of wrath and anger and revenge in the world. And that's doing Satan's work. You and I deserve God's wrath. And instead, God saved us. He sent his son to wash us clean. And you've accepted that forgiveness. And so now is the time to begin to forgive. Think of it like this. How do you want God to look at the sins that you commit? What factors do you want God to take into consideration? Do you want God to consider whether or not you're tired or not? Do you want God to take into consideration 
what your family background was like, what pressures you're under at work. When he considers the things that you do that you know are wrong and you knew it at the time you did it, it was wrong. Do you want him to to take the full you into account as he's deciding what to do with you? Well, if that's what you want from God, that's what God wants from you as you handle the people around you. That's hard for us. We, We don't have God's eye view. But God wants from us to grow, to get stronger in those muscles that allow us to express the same kind of compassion that God has shown to us. A beautiful passage about what, another great passage about what this life characterized by God in us, God's grace in us, is Romans chapter 12, and I've already referred to it a couple of times in this series. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over there to it. Romans chapter 12. Love must be sincere, says starting in verse, 19, uh, verse 9. Hate what's evil, cling to what's good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves, Paul says. This is what it means to pass on the grace that you have received. The church that Jesus Christ died for is to be a church where I'm not scrabbling to be number one. I'm, I'm pushing to make you number one. I'm pushing to push you up and to consider you greater than me. I'm pushing so that the best comes out of you. And you're doing that for me. And so that's, that's the ideal society. Consider others better than yourself. Honor others above yourself. Paul applies that in several ways later on in the book of Romans. Big issue comes up having to do with doctrinal differences and matters that people were arguing over. Romans chapter 14. This had to do with things that were really deeply ingrained in the Jewish Christians that were in Rome and not deeply ingrained at all in the Gentile Christians. There was a real chance, I don't know if you know, but uh, there was a real chance that in Rome you would truly have a Jewish Christian denomination over here and a Gentile Christian denomination over here. And Paul was desperately, part of what he's doing in the book of Romans, is trying to keep the Jews and the Gentiles from splitting from one another. And, 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 and what he's appealing to is you've been so forgiven by God. And God has been so understanding about what's going on with you. He's been so willing to let you take time to kind of catch up with his grace and to think things through and to figure stuff out. Can you extend a little time and mercy to let other people think things through and figure stuff out? You immediately have to go to the, to the cutoff point. He says, accept one another. Chapter 14, verse 1. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. And he goes on to talk about some of those disputable matters, and then he gets back to chapter 15. He says, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of those who are weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. Part of what it means to to be a recipient of this grace of God is to be a conduit of the grace of God, a channel that the grace of God flows through. We talked about using your gifts today in the Bible class this morning. Forgiveness is another way in which we channel the grace of God, that I find ways to give you the space to to think through and grow to become what God is trying to grow in you. God's great strength is 
is shown in becoming weak to save us. That's what Paul says. Those of you who are the strongest in the faith, strength means have the most God in you, you know, have have let God flow most freely and live most clearly in you. Those of you who are strongest in the faith, you are the ones who are to do this for those who are weaker. God's great strength is shown by becoming weak in order to save us. Jesus has to empty himself, to lose his strength, to lose his glory, to to empty himself of his equality with God so that he can become like us in order to save us. And so our grace-given strength, our God within us, is shown by becoming servants to those who are weak around us. Is that fair? Is it fair for the strong to serve the weak? I don't think it's fair at all. I don't think it is. It's, it's, in some ways, it's really anti-American. You know? The American way is you've got a strength, you exploit it, you monetize it, you use that to make a living, and, and good on you. And if you're weak, you lose. You better find someplace you're strong, or you got to get stronger. And, and, you know, the economy works that way, and it always has, but that cannot work for the problem we're facing with sin. If God says you've got to be strong enough to be with me, we, none of us get to be with him. And so he empties himself to close the distance. He allows himself to be killed as a sacrifice to wash us clean, and he enters into us when we don't deserve it so that he can be with us and we can be with him. That's the strength of the weakness of God, and that our strength is expressed in the same way. Paul goes on in this passage back in Romans chapter 12, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everyone. This teaching, do not repay evil to anyone, is a key teaching in Christianity. Other great philosophers have taught similar things. Jesus doubled down on this in multiple ways in his ministry, and it became key to how the Christians understand what they are, in the early centuries especially. Paul will say things, and Jesus will say things like, look, if people curse you, That is not a license for you. Okay, well, I tried being nice. Now I get to curse them, right? If people curse you, what? You answer with blessing. If people hate you, well, I tried being nice. Now I get to hate them, right? No, you answer with love. If people attack you, you pray for them. That became fundamental to who the Christians saw themselves as being. We actually see that showing up in the literature of 2nd century and 3rd century Christians. And they're, they're pleading with and they're pointing out to their persecutors. You guys do this stuff to us. We don't do any harm to you. In fact, we pray for you. We're the best thing that's happening to the Roman Empire right now. In spite of how you treat us. Verse 19 through 21, in this same passage, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. Leave room for God's wrath. That one bugs me. It actually goes on to quote the Old Testament that says, where God claims the right to revenge. We don't like to think of God that way, that God has the right to revenge. Why do you think God has the right to revenge? God's the judge. Yeah. 
That's one reason. I love that answer. Who's, I don't know who said it because I didn't see lips moving. Yeah, I love that answer. I think that's a great answer. God's the only one who actually will do revenge without making a hash of the whole process. Um, think about the times you've tried to manage a conflict and taken revenge as a part of your conflict management. How has that gone for you? How does that work? Now, we all have fantasies of what that's going to be like. We all imagine what it's, it's going to be so great. You're never going to see it coming, and then boom. And, and not only will I get to see them suffer the way they've made me suffer, but they'll realize why, and they'll look at me, and they'll say, you know, now I realize how terrible I've been to you. I'm sorry. I've had that fantasy. I'm not joking. I don't know if you, maybe I'm horrible and you guys are all wonderful, but I've had that fantasy pretty much word for word. You don't have that fantasy? Okay, you're all great. And, and what actually happens when we try to take revenge? How does it actually go? You do something evil to somebody else, how do they now feel? about the evil that they've done to you. They feel, man, I wish I'd done more, and next time, ooh, more is coming. More is coming. Oftentimes when I take revenge, this is the worst part, I take revenge, I say nasty things when I didn't even know the full situation. And the reason why God says, just leave that to me, is because when God punishes the wicked, he will do it with perfect knowledge and with perfect justice. When we see what God does, nobody's going to say, well, I don't think that's fair. Everyone who looks at what God does will say, well, that was nothing unfair about that, ever. That was perfect justice. That's an important point. I don't think the rest of the commands make sense unless we believe God is the perfect judge. Do not take revenge yourself. Leave room for God's wrath. If, I don't, if I'm not convinced God is the judge and will ultimately punish the wicked, then I'm going to have a hard time not taking revenge myself. And the world that we live in is filled with people who feel the only justice I'm able to get is the justice I get for myself. And it's not very good justice, and it's messy justice, and it never lives up to my fantasy. It just makes me more angry and more frustrated. But it's the best justice out there because these folks are going to get away with it if I don't do something. And so I do it anyway. And the world is in the mess it's in, partly because people are living like that's true. And the only way to, to forego that, it, that I know of, is to say, I, I leave you to God. I got to. I leave your punishment to God. I cannot take it into my own hands. Leave, uh, do not take revenge, dear friends. Leave room for God's wrath. On the contrary, the passage goes on. If your enemy is hungry, feed them. If he's in a, if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, quoting the Proverbs here, in doing this, you're going to heap burning coals of fire on his head. If you're looking at the scriptures, you can see that. It's not on the screen. You're going to heap burning coals of fire on his head. You do good for your enemies, then they are going to be, I think the burning coals of fire are the fire of of shame. This does happen sometimes. When you are full of wrath and full of rage and you face someone who is actually righteous and kind to you, 
you suddenly see yourself for who you are. And when that happens, there's a chance for you to change. The Holy Spirit's actually working on you in that moment. But even if you don't change, and even if it doesn't make any difference, and even if you persist and even double down in your wickedness, the person who lives by this standard, who does what Paul is saying, what Jesus says, when your enemy is hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. That person is living like God lives. That person is acting like God acts. Because that person has come to realize that's what God's been doing to me the whole time. When I, with my sins, spit in God's face, God's been feeding me anyway. God's been letting me drink God's water my whole life. Whether I was being good to God or pretty terrible to God, God's been doing that. And so I'm going to do that. I want more God in my life passage ends with this phrase, one of my favorite phrases in Paul, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Satan's big lie is that only evil can defeat evil. Satan tells us that the only way to overcome the bad stuff that's in the world is to get down in the gutter with it and to use the same tactics that it does. Satan tells us that. That is not true. How do we know that's not true? Because it sure looks true. If people in your family, extended family, are telling lies, to the rest of your family members about you. It feels like the only way to fight them is to tell lies of your own. If they are slandering you, it feels like the only way to fight them is to slander back. In politics, it feels like if the other side is distorting the truth and twisting the facts, really the only way to fight them is to distort the truth, twist the facts back. Get your own spin doctors. If the other side is doing evil, it feels like the only way to fight is to do the same thing. But it's a lie. And we Christians, we know why it's a lie. It's been proved once and for all. The cross of Jesus has proved that wrong forever. Those of us who believe what the cross of Christ means, we know that you really don't defeat evil by becoming evil yourself. You can overcome evil with good. What the Christian faith says is, right now, you and I, we have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have been washed clean by this amazing event that took place in history 2,000 years ago, God in the flesh sacrificing himself, his blood making you and I clean. We do not deserve it. We aren't going to deserve it. It happened anyway. And all we can do now is to accept that gift of grace that allows God to come near to us and us to be reconciled to God. Not only that, but that moment of terrible sacrifice and weakness, that death on the cross, will never be silenced in the entire history of the world. That story of the cross of Christ will march across the pages of history. Now, the people who tell the story will always be persecuted like their master was. And there will be many times when looking at it, you'll say, oh, there's it's about to be extinguished. You know, the forces that are arrayed against the people of Christ seem like they're too powerful, and it, maybe it won't last another 10 years. But the story of the cross of Christ will persist across all of human history. And one day, one day, 
everyone, everywhere, on earth, and every being that exists under the earth and above the earth, whatever that means, all tongues will confess the truth of what that cross means. That Jesus Christ, that miserable criminal died on a cross, Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what's going to happen. So don't tell me that you can't overcome evil with good. That is actually the story of our universe that is right now playing out. So in your life, that's going to look different depending on what your situation is. Every one of us has our own struggles with evil. Every one of us has the resources that we currently have and the resources that the Holy Spirit is trying to build in us going forward to deal with it. And there's nobody in here who feels all that great, I would venture to say, about how you've done so far in <laughs> overcoming evil with good. Because all of us mess up on that. And even that's okay. What matters is that going forward, tomorrow, there's more God in you when you deal with the people around you who need your grace and need your help than there is today. That you call God into your heart, that you call him next to you to say, God, give me the strength to deal with these who have hurt me and who have wronged me. Help me to help them have a path going forward. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. I'm going to, I have a little bit of time left, and there were some questions. Do you want me to do that now, or you want me to? Okay. Uh, I got a couple of questions, and if you're thinking of a question, you can text it to, uh, oh, you, oh, great. Thanks so much. Uh, so we've got, um, so I have one question that came in. What does once saved, always saved mean? You may have to remind me of the other ones, Doug. I think I remember one more. Um, what does once saved, always saved mean in the context of grace? And um, once saved, always saved is a formula uh, that came out of one branch of the Reformation movement. It came out of John Calvin's branch of the Reformation movement. It's not a formula that John Calvin used, to my knowledge. Maybe he did. Uh, it's a formulation that is intended to encapsulate one of his key doctrines, which is that uh, if God chooses to save an individual, that individual once they're saved, can never be lost. Because if they could, if they could make a choice that would cause them to be lost, that would be a human will overriding the will of God, which John Calvin and the followers of Calvin believed to be impossible. Uh, it wasn't so much a doctrine about grace as it was a doctrine about how, how the will of human beings and the will of God had to interact. It was kind of a logical analysis, I think. And I think it accurately represents what Calvin thought, but it comes from a slightly later uh, formulation. It's an out-of-dort formulation, if I remember correctly. It's been a while since I passed the test on that, so maybe, but I think that's right. So once saved, always saved, uh, is this doctrine that says, uh, if you're ever saved, you're always going to be saved. And the reason for that isn't you. The reason for that is you have been chosen by God. God has made a decision in your case, and that's a permanent decision. Nothing you do will make a difference about that. Uh, to me, part of the problem with that whole line of reasoning is, is thinking that God, God's will is somehow in competition with our will. If God does something then I don't do it. And if I do something, God doesn't do it. So if I make a choice, then God is out of that choice. And if God makes a choice, then I have no role to play in that choice. 
Uh, that is how I think John Calvin reaches the decisions that he reaches. He's thinking in those terms as if God is one of us. But God isn't one of us. Uh, God is the potter. We are the pots. God is the creator. He operates on this level. We operate down here on the creation level. And again and again and again, that logic that says, if I can figure out so-and-so did this, then I figure out so-and-so else didn't do it. That logic breaks down again and again and again in Scripture. And so for me, this logic that says, you know, if God decides to save me, then there's nothing I can do about that, or vice versa. If I can choose to be lost or make some decision that causes me to be lost, that negates the power of God. I don't think it works like that. I'm not sure how it works, but I don't think it works like that. And so I don't think a doctrine like once saved, always saved, uh, is a scriptural doctrine. I don't think it's a doctrine that, that works very well for us. I think it's a doctrine derived from logic more than it's derived from scripture. Okay, that was probably super confusing, so I'm willing to entertain a follow-up question. That whole idea of God's action and our action has always been super confusing to me. Okay, so that's my answer on that one. And if you have a follow-up, I'm happy to hear it. Um, the next question, if I'm trying to remember the details of it, but basically it's a question that says, here's a person who has remembered a sin from a long time back in their past, and the people that they offended are gone. They, they can't even uh, ask for forgiveness from these people anymore. So it feels like they're stuck. They can't you know, move past this and can't get forgiveness? And, and does that mean that they've lost their salvation because they, you know, they can't ever ask for forgiveness in this context? And um, that's a difficult situation, of course, and it would be better if a person was able to ask for forgiveness. And it would be wonderful if that could happen. But... Uh, I think a person who's having that and worrying about that can probably, every time that thought comes up, can remember Jesus on the cross. I would really like it. If that's, if that's bothering a person over and over and over again, just to begin to pair that thought, I, you know, I was never able to apologize, I wish I could have, with the thought of, but Jesus died to wash me clean. <laughs> you know, and every time I have this thought to try and train myself, like, Jesus died to wash me clean. Because he did. Because he did. I mean, he was right next to a guy who was, he wasn't just a thief. We say the thief on the cross. This guy was a uh, traitor. He was a, he was a uh, terrorist would be a good translation for what he was, a lefty, a terrorist. Uh, so he was a pretty awful person, killing innocent people, whatever it took to try and drive out the Romans, what we think he was. And he doesn't do anything really to be saved other than to cast his hope on Jesus Christ right in that last moment. And Jesus' blood on that cross not even finished being shed. Jesus' blood on that cross saved him. That's an unusual case, but it's real. And so, uh, and, and I would just say that in general to people, because I mean, this comes up a lot. I have people in my congregation at home who worry about things from the far past. And I, and I just said, man, I don't know how to fix it, but I do know the more you meditate on that washing, cleansing blood of Jesus Christ, the better it's going to be for you. Nothing can take those thoughts away forever, but the more you meditate on the blood of Jesus Christ, the better it's going to be for you. Okay, so maybe that would be an answer I would give on that. I don't, I don't have an absolute answer. Yes, sir.
Okay. Okay. So uh, in your study book, I actually put that Romans 9 passage. God hardens whom he wishes to harden, and God has mercy on whom he wishes to have mercy, and God is unwilling for any to perish. Uh, okay. Let's believe all three of those things and move on. Um, is, that a, is that a contradiction? I don't think it is, but I think it's hard to understand. Um, I think the first answer I would give, this actually came up last night. By the way, and a lot of you are the, some of the same folks that were there last night. And uh, for those of you who weren't at the teacher session after dinner last night, you have some really top-notch teachers coming down the pike. I'm really excited for this series that you've got going. People who have really been thinking about this. Uh, and I was impressed with the level of questions I got. So here's what I'll say about Romans. This is what, I'm going to sit down for this. This is hard work. So uh, first thing you need to notice about, let's turn over there to Romans. And let's look at this Romans 9 passage. Because it's worth, it's worth paying attention carefully to the context of what's going on in Romans. So if you look at, you know, I mean, the passage occurs in the context of Romans 9, 10, and 11. What's the topic being discussed in Romans 9, 10, and 11? If you've got your Bibles, you can kind of tell. Go back there to verse 1 of chapter 9, and it comes up a couple of other times too. What's the big topic what's, that Paul's in anguish about? The hard-heartedness of the nation of Israel, right? What was Paul's missionary experience? He went to all these cities, all through the Roman Empire. Where did he always go first? He always goes to the synagogues first. He preaches his guts out to the synagogues, often until they just run him out. They won't listen anymore, right? But what keeps happening? And he's trying to, he always goes to the Jews first. But what keeps happening in city after city? More Gentiles respond to the gospel than Jews. Why is this happening? Paul's kind of asking the question in these chapters. I mean, we think of the inspiration of God where you just get all the answers and you know everything. But honestly, Paul is struggling with God's spirit in that moment on these pages. You get to see him working on this problem in chapters 9, 10, and 11. I, I promise you I have an urgent love and desire for Israel to be saved, but why aren't they? Why, what's going on, God? And he's trying to figure it out. And so he says several different things. He says, well, it's not like God's word has failed. I'm an Israelite. Lots of people are Israelites. God is calling Israelites and making Israel part of this kingdom. But he says we've got to understand how some of how God's sovereignty works. And he uses the illustration of Jacob and Esau, and he uses the illustration of Pharaoh, both from the Old Testament, right? What does he say, if you're reading through chapter 9, what does he say about Jacob and Esau? Yeah, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Before either had done anything good. Before they were born, before either any had done anything. Now, there's a strand of philosophy, once again, Luther and Calvin, coming out of the Protestant Reformation, Augustine before them, said, you see how God is making choices individually for your salvation before you're ever born. Who's going to be among the elect and who's not? God's choosing. Because look at what happened to Jacob and Esau. Well, what's the problem with that application? Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. 
Some of you have Bibles that will tell you where that quotation is from. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Where is it from? It's actually from Malachi, which is written centuries after Jacob and Esau are dead. And if you read the context in Malachi, it doesn't have anything to, how have I, you know, you ask, well, how have you loved Jacob and hated Esau? Look at what I've done to the nation. Look at what, how Israel has been treated by me. Look at how the nation that came from Esau, Edom, has been treated by me. So that passage that Paul quotes is not even about those individuals. It's about the nations that came from him and God's sovereign choice. Now, did God choose between those two individuals? He clearly did. And was it because Jacob was a cool guy and honest and everything? No, Jacob was a horrible person. I actually like Esau better in the story. He's not too bright, but, you know, he's not a liar and a cheat. Um, but God chose Jacob anyway to make his promises come true because God was choosing in the future this group of people to do this thing with. He had already chosen through Abraham to do that with this group of people. And, and he wasn't choosing Edom to do that with. Now, why did God make that choice? Anybody? Let's turn to the verse that tells us why God made that choice. Everybody? You turning to it? Makes it, makes it crystal clear why God chooses the things he chooses. You found it? If you find it, tell me, because we don't know. We don't know why God makes the choices he makes and why he elects these, this group and not that group. And that's, that's part of the mystery of this whole thing of, of God's working in human history and, wor- and choosing to work through people. But he did it. He chose a different destiny for the Edomites and for Israel. Does that mean that all Edomites are going to hell? No, it doesn't say that at all. It just says this was the choice made for Edom. This is the choice made for, for Israel. They're chosen for different roles in the in the God's process of salvation. And then he uses the Pharaoh example from Exodus, right? How does that story go? God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he tells Moses, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And you read the story, God actually does harden Pharaoh's heart some of the time. Some of the time, what else happens? Pharaoh hardens his heart. So who really hardened Pharaoh's heart? Was it Pharaoh or was it God? Yes, I like your answer. Thank you, Lori. Yeah. Uh, Yes. God's actions and human actions, they don't cancel each other out the way human actions and human actions cancel each other out. It's not like that. God's the potter. We're the pots. And I don't know how to explain it, but I know that that's the way the Bible thinks about it. And so, yeah, God hardened Pharaoh, and Pharaoh hardened himself. Pharaoh was a jerk. Uh, and God used that for sure, right? And, and then Paul said, in quotes, you know, I will have mercy on who I will mercy. I'll, have, I'll harden who I want to harden, right? What is all that about? What is all that passage about? Is it about God choosing who goes to heaven and who goes to hell, individually picking you out and saying, you, I've chosen you to go to heaven, Nothing you can do can change that. You, I've chosen you to go to hell. Nothing You can go to church your whole life. Nothing you can do can change that. No, nothing in this passage tells you that. This is a passage, this passage is about the problem that's stated in the beginning of chapter 9, right? Why isn't God letting more of the Jewish nation come into the church? Why, isn't, why aren't more Jews being responsive to the gospel? Why isn't that happening? So that's really the problem there. I actually think that Augustine and then, you know, to an nth degree, especially John Calvin, went very, very strong on applying these passages to your individual salvation and God choosing you for damnation or salvation. And uh, I don't think that that's what these passages have to be talking about. I don't think that you have to get that conclusion from here. Now, I'm going to say 
something that's just going to mess up what I just said. Is, is God active in our choosing to be saved? Yeah, he is. How does that work? I don't know. And I don't think I'm ever going to know. Even when I get to heaven. Some things I think I am going to know when I get to heaven. I'm not sure I'm ever going to know that one. Because some of these things, just God is big. However big you think God is, he's bigger than that. And God is weird. However weird you think God is, he's weirder than that. And his purposes are mysterious. However mysterious you think they are, (laughs) please believe me, they are more mysterious than that. C.S. Lewis has this beautiful line. He says, whatever image I form of God, God must in mercy smash. You get that? And it's our nature to try and get God and figure him out and say, okay, now this is what God's doing. But every image we can form, because we're limited, we're small, we're tiny, every image we can form is an inadequate image. And if God loves us, at a certain point as we grow and get closer to him, he's going to say, yeah, we've got to get rid of that. That's, that's holding you back now. That was good for a while. That was helpful, but it's holding you back now. We've got to get rid of that. And let's move on to something better. And every image is going to be like, and maybe in heaven that's going to be true. I don't know. And so how God's will interacts with our salvation and our individual salvation, I don't know. I do know if you evaluate what made you be a Christian, you made choices, but a ton of stuff happened that you had no control over. Who were your parents and who talked to you and you know, what did you have for breakfast and a bunch of other stuff is also involved in that. And how does that all work together? We don't know. We don't know. And so I don't like it that Christians have been uber super dogmatic about this stuff uh, in, in the areas where they, I don't think they have grounds to be uber super dogmatic. Okay. What about God wants everybody to be saved? He's not willing for anybody to be lost. Says what it means, man. <laughs> he does not want anybody to be lost. He proved that by taking on flesh and dying on the cross. So nobody has to be lost. Right? That was salvation for the whole world offered freely. That's what that was. It's a weird feature of where John Calvin eventually goes is he said, no. When Jesus died on the cross, he only had certain people in mind. Well, that's not in Scripture anywhere. In fact, it contradicts some stuff. You've got to really pull some stuff to get to that place. But he has to do that to follow his other logic out. So I just don't think it works. Jesus died on the cross because God really wants everybody to be saved. He doesn't want anybody to be lost. Okay, those are the three questions. Is there any others? Okay. Well, thank you guys very much. You're very patient, and you are the best of the best. 3.30 in the afternoon. Awesome.